Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. For many hematologic malignancies, standard chemotherapy alone will not provide a cure or even a durable response. In contrast, an allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant, or HCT, offers a chance at a cure for many patients. Unfortunately, the possibility of cure comes with serious risk, including graft-versus-host disease, organ damage, infections, and disease relapse. Disease relapse is now the leading cause of treatment failure and mortality after allogeneic HCT, so it has become vital to find strategies aimed at preventing disease recurrence. Listen in to today's podcast as Dr. Kaylee Clark reviews pharmacologic agents utilized in the maintenance setting to reduce the risk of HCT relapse. Today, um, I'll be focusing on hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. So hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is a very important intervention as it provides, is the only curative option for many hematological malignancies, including acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia. Unfortunately, the leading cause of treatment failure for these patients after transplant is actually a relapse of the disease itself. Therefore, it's very important and imperative that we have strategies to reduce the risk of relapse. Today, the objectives of of the presentation are to describe the basic principles of maintenance therapy after transplant. And then we will also talk about the evidence and guideline recommendations for maintenance therapies after transplant in two disease states, acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia. Before jumping into our first objective, I do just wanna give a basic overview of what allogeneic transplant is. So in simple terms, you have a patient that has to undergo a hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. They they undergo what's called conditioning chemotherapy, which are very, very high doses of chemotherapy that wipe out their cells, both their healthy cells and their disease cells. And then you have a recipient that has their healthy blood forming cells that are infused into the donor. And really what happens with this is that we have, then we go on to achieve these last three goals. So Because we've wiped out all of their cells, we're providing a rescue by giving the newly, um, the donor cells. And then we're also gonna be establishing a graft versus leukemia effect. And what that is, is where if there's any sort of malignant cells that are still hanging out after that conditioning chemotherapy, the graft can then go on to attack those malignant cells to wipe them out, which is essential for certain types of malignant uh, malignancies. And then lastly, for certain types of bone marrow failure, cases, you also want to restore normal hematopoiesis. As I mentioned, um, graft-versus-leukemia effects are very important for the success of certain types of transplants, especially for ALL and acute lympho and AML. So the graft-versus-leukemia effect is where, as I mentioned in the last slide, it's where the graft is actually attacking any malignant cells still hanging out, whereas GVHD um, is something that we don't like. It's where the graft is actually attacking the normal cells in the patient, which can lead to complications down the road. There's this, the GVL and GVHG are very closely associated, and there's this complex interplay between GVL, GVHD, and transplant-related mortality. 
where GVHD can actually can cause transplant related mortality. So the more GVHD you have, the more likely you're gonna die after transplant. Whereas graft versus leukemia effect is something that if we have that, it's better for our outcomes in terms of transplant related mortality. Strategies that we would like or optimal strategies would be something that we do not have any sort of GVHD, but we're either maintaining or enhancing GVL. Unfortunately, GVL takes time to develop. So this can take several months to actually have the full maturity of the graft where it's attacking those malignant cells. And we know that the most common cause of relapse um, or transplant related mortality after transplant is relapse itself. And it's most common during that first year of transplant. So it's very, very important that we have strategies that we can utilize during those few, first few months after transplant to give patients. And I want to further reinforce and orient you all to the severity of these um, relapse-related deaths. With the latest statistics from the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research. So these are from 2020. And I think really what I want to hone in on here is as bone marrow transplant specialists and pharmacists, we often are hyper-focused on preventing GVHD. We're focused on preventing and treating infections. But really the, the number one cause of death in our patients is by far relapse of the disease itself. So it's ranging anywhere from 53% to 60% for these patients, making it the number one cause of relapse. So coming up with strategies to decrease this is very imperative for our patients to increase their outcomes. Some of those, um, some of those strategies include the ones listed here. So a donor lymphocyte infusion is the first one I'll discuss, and that's also known as a DLI. A DLI is an infusion of unstimulated lymphocytes from the recipient, and you infuse that into the donor cell once they've relapsed. And the thought is you can actually augment the graft versus leukemia effects, which are beneficial for our patient. Unfortunately, this is typically a reactive approach, meaning we give this after they've actually had a relapse. Um, similar to this, you can also do a second transplant for these patients or immune suppression withdrawal, which is thought to decrease, or you have probably an increased risk of GVHG, but also an increased GVL um, effects. So unfortunately, all three of these are reactive in nature. So typically we're starting this when they've actually had a relapse or showing signs of relapse, and they have significant risk of GVHG. Fortunately, we have pharmacological agents that have really become of interest over the last decade. And the thought here is that we can utilize these in the prophylactic setting, meaning we can start them before they actually have a full-blown relapse. And they have become very attractive um, as we've started to try to reduce the amount of relapse in this setting. As a visual for you all, um, I think that this is really helpful. So maintenance Maintenance therapies actually fall into two main buckets, depending on the timing of when you start them. It can either be prophylactic. If you look at this purple line, the patient here has active disease. They undergo some sort of conditioning regimen with chemotherapy and then go to transplant. After transplant, we want them in this CR, which means a complete remission. And the thought here is that we can give them prophylactic therapy to keep them in that remission. Likewise, we have preemptive therapy, which is another form of maintenance. However, for these patients, they undergo transplant, they're in a complete remission, and we're monitoring them with what's called MRD, which is minimal residual disease. 
it's a very specific and sensitive laboratory test that we can utilize to determine if it's essentially a precursor if they're going to relapse in the future. So once they pop from MRD negative to MRD positive, we can start therapy here. In contrast, and historically what we've done is what's when the patient actually relapses, we can utilize one of those three strategies that we've focused in on the last slide or just give them chemotherapy. Today's presentation is really going to be focused in on the preemptive and prophylactic therapy as these are can be utilized prior to any sort of relapse. The ideal characteristics of a pharmacological agent after transplant would really be something that's very directly cytotoxic to the malignant cells and not to our healthy cells. We also want to stimulate that graft versus leukemia effects because we know that improves our transplant-related mortality. In contrast, um, things that are not ideal include any sort of damage to the graft function itself. We wouldn't want to induce significant GVHG, so that's like if the agent was actually attacking our healthy cells. And then also any sort of drug interactions with the immunosuppression would be problematic and significant side effects as well. So with that, we're gonna jump into our first assessment question. You can all pull out your phone or your smart, smart tablet and go to pollev.com slash mayo or rx or text this code here. The question is, which of the following is false? A, the risk of relapse after transplant is highly variable patient to patient. B, the leading cause of death after transplant is GVHG. C, GVL improves transplant-related mortality. Or D, an ideal maintenance therapy has direct cytotoxic effects against only malignant cells. I'll give everyone a second to answer this question. Looks like we have about 12 responses. A majority of you have the correct answer. Um, which what should be the leading cause of death after transplant is actually um, relapse of the disease um, itself. A is, is correct. The risk of relapse after transplant is highly variable patient to patient. We know if we took a patient to transplant and they weren't in a complete remission, they would have worse outcomes compared to those that were in a complete remission. C is correct. Um, we know that the graft versus leukemia effect does improve transplant-related mortality. And then D, we do want to um, a therapy, a maintenance therapy, which is very directly cytotoxic to the malignant cells. All right, and we will now move on to our second objective of the day, which is going to be focusing in on acute lymphoblastic leukemia. ALL represents about 20% of all adult leukemias, and just to orient you all to the treatment pathway, these patients will typically present, we'll give them induction chemotherapy, plus or minus some consolidation therapy, and then we reach this crossroads where we either decide they're gonna go down the transplant route or not receive a transplant. Oftentimes the patients that are gonna be receiving the transplant have high risk cytogenetics or they just have high risk features like a mutation um, as highlighted here. So 25% of ALL cases will have Philadelphia chromosome positive disease. And if you look here to the right, I have a visual of what Philadelphia chromosome disease is. So <clears throat> it's just a translocation between chromosome nine and chromosome 22, which creates the formation of BCR able. And this formation of BCR able will cause the cells to have like ongoing unregulated cell proliferation, which is great for the cancer, but not great for our patients because it just causes this unproliferated or yeah, just continuous cell proliferation. So this is, of course, a negative prognostic factor if you are pH positive ALL. And historically, these patients would go to transplant because their outcomes are so poor. So we know with 
just standard chemotherapy, their long-term outcomes are only about 10%, whereas this does improve to 30 to 35% with a transplant for pH positive disease. And I would expect that this is even higher nowadays with modern monitoring with minimal residual disease or that MRD monitoring, because we can utilize that in the pre-transplant setting as well as the post-transplant setting to um, detect if they're gonna have a relapse. We also have additional tools in our toolbox, including Philadelphia chromosome inhibitors that have really been of focus in the induction, induction therapy setting, but have been of more interest in the post-transplant setting of recent. So what the, what the goal of this is, is that you have this BCR able tyrosine kinase that was formed by that translocation. ATP typically will bind to this pocket and cause proliferation. However, we have BCR able tyrosine kinase inhibitors or those Philadelphia chromosome inhibitors that bind to this pocket, not allowing ATP to bind there and inhibit proliferation. Once these came out and once we started thinking, could we use these in the post-transplant setting, there were several case reports and retrospective studies that looked at imatinib, which is a Philadelphia chromosome inhibitor. And there was then this study that came out in 2012, which was looking at the efficacy and safety of imatinib in the post-transplant setting. It included 55 patients with pH positive ALL, and they were randomized within the six weeks after transplant to either the prophylactic group, meaning that they were started on imatinib after they had fully engrafted their neutrophils and their platelets, or they were allocated to the preemptive group, which means they were monitored very closely. And when they turned MRD positive, they were started on imatinib. The target goal here was 600 milligrams of imatinib, but they could be reduced down to 400 milligrams if needed. The scheduled time that they wanted patients to continue the imatinib was one year after MRD negativity for both groups. Some baseline characteristics I wanna focus in on are starred here. So most of these patients were in their first complete remission. So meaning they received induction chemotherapy plus or minus consolidation and we were taking them straight to transplant. All of these patients, both in the prophylactic and preemptive group did receive imatinib in the pre-transplant pre setting. And then as you would expect, the time interval between transplant and imatinib was shorter for the prophylactic group. So a little over a month after transplant and then 70 days for the preemptive group. When looking at the efficacy, um, this study was really powered to detect a difference in hematological and molecular recurrence, reoccurrences. However, they had several other secondary endpoints, including um, disease relapse, overall survival, any sort of toxicities, as well as premature discontinuation of imatinib. They did have their first MRD analysis within three months of after transplant, and about 20% of all patients at that point were already MRD positive or had a PCR positive disease that was equal between both the prophylactic and the preemptive group. And then they also underwent what's called the serial MRD analysis. So throughout the study, in 56% of patients, of all the patients, tested positive at least once. They at least had one BCR able positive um, test. However, it was statistically significantly lower in the prophylactic group at 40% versus 69%. And their conclusions from this were that prophylactic imatinib prevented more molecular reoccurrences and was associated with longer duration of PCR negativity. However, this did not translate to a difference in duration-free survival or disease-free survival or overall survival. As you can see, the five-year overall survival was 80% versus 75%.
And just to put this into context for, for you that, for those of you that do not know what the outcomes are for these patients, because um, they didn't have a comparative group without imatinib, the three-year overall survival for those that had pH positive ALL was more like 40% to 60%. And obviously we can't compare those directly, but just gives you a little bit of reference that this does seem to improve outcomes for patients. In terms of safety, the most common reason that these patients discontinued therapy was GI intolerance at 13%. Many patients did have to dose reduce down to that 400 milligrams a day, most commonly because of hepatotoxicity and GI toxicity. As highlighted in these last two bullets, most of these patients did not finish that one year of MRD negativity. A lot of them were discontinuing early, so 67% in the prophylactic group and 71% in the preemptive group. I would say I, from the medium duration of therapy in the prophylactic group, it was about seven months and only about four and a half months in the preemptive group. But with that, there, these are really the main takeaways. So there were similar outcomes for both the prophylactic and the preemptive group. There was low risk of hematological relapse with the matinib. And then although it was unexpectedly low compliance due to toxicity, we're still seeing really great outcomes. So this may be a clue that we don't need a lot of exposure to imatinib um, to still have those great outcomes. Unfortunately, we're really lacking large randomized trials right now. Um, collectively, we do have many single arm prospective and retrospective studies that tend to show us um, good efficacy. So in this last column on the right, it shows the outcomes, which seem to be quite encouraging. But what I want to really focus in on here on this slide is the therapy initiation after transplant, the treatment, and the medium duration of therapy. And the reason I want to highlight that is really just showing the, the variability here. Um, we don't have a lot of consistency. So the first two studies are with nilotinib, which is a newer, more potent BCR-ABLE inhibitor on the market. And these studies were starting therapy about a month after transplant. They received nilotinib 200 milligrams to 300 milligrams twice a day. And the medium duration of therapy was anywhere from 12 to 20 months. Likewise, dasatinib um, was 50 to 100 milligrams a day. However, they were starting these patients much later after transplant, so anywhere from four to six months, and they didn't continue it as long. Really, the, the key takeaway here is that, yes, we have these studies that tend to show us that there's efficacy. However, we're really lacking more guidance in when to start the therapies, what the best BCR-ABLE is, BCR-ABLE inhibitor is, if there is one, and then how long to continue these agents. I did want to provide a summary for the pharmacists in the room and as well as other people that are watching. Even if you aren't a bone marrow transplant specialist, I think that any of these patients could be admitted to internal medicine floors, ICUs, cardiology floors. So being aware that they can be on directed therapy, even post-transplant is important. I won't go into too much detail here, but I do want to highlight the metabolism of these drugs. So they are all CYP3A4 substrates, meaning we do need to be aware of drug-drug interactions, especially for our patients that are starting antifungals like azoles as prophylaxis after transplant. And then also what I think is unique about the disatinib and nilotinib is that they both require an acidic environment. So we need to avoid H2 blockers and PPIs, which are often started in the hospital. So just being mindful of that. Based on the information that we do have at this point, um, two large governing bodies, ASTCT, which is the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy, 
as well as NCCN did put together some recommendations. So ASTCT and NCCN both say to consider maintenance therapy um, with a TKI post-transplant. They ASTCT does mention MRD monitoring and NCCN is a little bit more specific with the duration. They just say that you should continue this regimen for at least one year. However, we're really, we really need more information to tell us which patients are best suited for this as well as um, the duration of therapy. And that brings us to our second question of the day. Um, this is a 60 year old that has fully engrafted after an allo transplant for pH positive ALL. The team plans on starting maintenance therapy with imatinib. What is the optimal duration of therapy following transplant? A, one year, B, two years, C, not well established, or D, indefinitely? It looks like a majority of you answered what I think is the, the most correct answer, which is C, not well established. Um, I do think this can go a couple of different ways. Um, there was an MD Anderson trial, although retrospective, that did show that two years was better than one year. However, the, the one large prospective trial we do have does support one year. Um, but it, really what I think this shows is that we really just need more information to really establish what the optimal duration of therapy is for these patients. All right, and that brings us to our last objective of today, which will be focusing in on acute myeloid leukemia or AML. This is the most common acute leukemia among adults. Similar to our treatment algorithm for ALL, these patients will typically present and we'll give them induction chemotherapy followed by consolidation chemotherapy, and then they reach this crossroad. So we either take them to transplant or they do not undergo transplant. And a driver of this is oftentimes those high risk cytogenetics as well as certain types of mutations. As you can see, there's a very large variability in terms of how many of these patients will relapse after transplant. It's anywhere from 30 to 80%. And it is quite variable depending upon those cytogenetics, depending upon the donor source and et cetera. Um, also for these patients, I, I think this really just goes to show this last bullet here, the two-year overall survival rates are only 14 to 26%, so quite dismal. <clears throat> for anyone that does relapse after transplant, which just further, I think, highlights the need for strategies to prevent any sort of relapse in the post-transplant setting. Similar to um, our ALL case, we do have a targeted approach for AML, as well as a non-targeted approach. We will focus with the, we will start with the targeted approach here, where it's FMS like tyrosine kinase three or FLT3. FLT3 is something that's normally on normal cells is expressed on our stem cells and then goes away after the stem cells have differentiated. However, if you have a mutation in FLT3, this can lead to increased survival, proliferation, and differentiation. And unfortunately, this is quite common in our AML patients. So about 25% of all cases will have a mutation in the internal tandem duplication area of the FLT3, or 10% of those patients will have a mutation within the tyrosine kinase domain. As you would expect, this is a negative prognostic factor. And if they have a FLT3 mutation, if we're able to take them to transplant, we will. Um, we do know that their, their risk of relapse after transplant is, is much higher compared to other patients and just kind of further highlights the, the reason why we need to have strategies to reduce this risk for those patients. 
So similar to our ALL patients, we can target the FLT3 um, mutation. So we have FLT3 inhibitors. The first one on the market was serafinib, which is a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's specific to the internal tandem domain. We also have newer agents like mitostorin and gilteritinib, which inhibit both the internal tandem domain as well as the tyrosine kinase domain. Um, and what happens is that they inhibit this and they inhibit those pathways. So the PI3K, the JAK and the RAS pathway, which doesn't allow for survival of those cells. The, the first one that was studied was the serafinib in the Stormane trial. So this was a phase two international randomized control trial that looked at 83 patients with FLT3 ITD positive AML. Patients were either randomized to placebo or to serafinib, 200 milligrams to 400 milligrams twice a day for up to 24 months. These patients were started at day plus 60 to 100, and the median follow-up was 55.1 months. The results were quite encouraging. As you can see here, the 24-month relapse-free survival was 85% versus 53%, and the 24-month survival overall survival was also statistically improved at 91% versus 66% with the serafinib. So very encouraging results. And then in terms of toxicity, it was very well tolerated. We're always thinking about GVHD here, um, and they did find the overall GVHD was 77% versus 60%. Unfortunately, this, the study wasn't powered to detect a difference, so they didn't include p-values. Um, but in their discussion, they just say that these were manageable toxicities. Another common side effect of serafinib is skin toxicities. So I wanted to highlight that here. It was 12% versus 3% in the placebo group. Unfortunately, um, so I know they had planned for 24 months, but really the medium duration of therapy was 8.6 months in the serafinib group versus 13.6 months in the placebo group, which I think just further reinforces that potentially these patients don't need super long exposure to these maintenance strategies and still have great outcomes. Another similar trial that supported the use of serafinib was done in 2020. It included 202 patients, and they did serafinib 400 milligrams twice a day for a shorter amount of time, so six months. And they started a bit earlier, so the day plus 30 to day plus 60. The median follow-up was 22 months, and as you can see, these patients also had um, much higher relapse-free survival and two-year overall survival compared to the placebo group. Um, and the medium duration of therapy was also 4.5 months. So very, very encouraging for the support of serafinib in this area. Likewise, we have some information on other FLT3 inhibitors like mitostorin and gilteritinib. Mitostorin has a couple of trials that support its use and showed improved relapse-free survival and either um, improvement in overall survival or a trend towards overall survival. I also wanted to include here gilteritinib. Although this study isn't published, I think it's gonna be very exciting once the results are available. They're expecting the results to be out in 2023 versus 2024, but it is a, it's a large, large study. It was double-blinded randomized trial. So hopefully this can give us a better clue of when to start therapy and how long to start therapy too. Similar to with ALL, I wanted to pro provide a summary slide of the three agents we discussed. So this is serafinib, mitostorin, and gilteritinib. Similar to our other agents, these are all CYP3A4 substrates. So keeping that in mind for drug-drug interactions. I also did wanna highlight some side effects here for the serafinib, 
most commonly you're thinking of rash um, and also diarrhea patients have. Mitostorin, I feel like a big one I've seen in the inpatient setting is cytopenias. And then gilteritinib, something that's unique about this is that you often see less cytopenias because it doesn't have as much effect on the KIT pathway, which is what causes a lot of the myelosuppression. However, there is a rare, rare but serious side effect with the gilteritinib, which is differentiation syndrome. Now switching gears um, from the targeted approach to the non-targeted approach, if you have a patient that has, doesn't have a FLT3 mutation, but they have high-risk cytogenetics or a TP53 mutation, you know that they're, they're at higher risk of relapse and you might want to give them something in this maintenance setting. So really this is what the hypomethylene agents were being explored for. The hypothesized anti-leukemic leukemic activity was thought to be um, because of the activity in the induction setting for acute myeloid leukemia, as well as myelodysplastic syndrome. Likewise, they also found um, that these induce re-expression of silenced tumor suppressors and increased expression of tumor antigens, thus augmenting the graft versus leukemia effects and hopefully decreasing GVHD risk. These were appealing for these following reasons, uh, relatively low toxicity with these agents. We knew that they were used in other myeloid diseases, and they've also shown activity in complex cytogenetics, including TP53. The first study I want to highlight was with decitabine. This is one of the hypomethylating agents. It was a phase two open label randomized control trial that included high-risk patients, which there was um, a, long, a long list of the definition for high-risk AML, but this could include secondary AML, high-risk cytogenetics, as well as relapsed AML. These patients were given decitabine, five milligrams per meter squared per day, IV plus GCSF, which is growth factor, 100 micrograms per meter squared for five days. And this was given every six to eight weeks for a total of six cycles versus observation. And what they found is that there was improved outcomes in these patients. So they found reduced relapse at two years, which was 15% versus 38%. And they also found an improvement in um, overall survival. In contrast to this, this, this study was done with azacitidine, which is another hypomethylating agent. This was a phase three open label randomized control trial, including a similar patient population. However, the azacitidine was given as azacitidine 32 milligrams per meter squared per day, IV for five days. And that was every 28 days for 12 cycles versus observation. In this study, their conclusions were that there was no difference in medium relapse free survival or overall survival. I do wanna point a few things out here. So, the first thing is that this azacitidine dose is much lower than what we utilize in the treatment setting of AML. So typically we'll be giving these patients 75 milligrams per meter squared per day for seven days. Um, and there was a overall slow accrual with this study. In addition, the, the study also comments on the observation group having historically better outcomes than what they've seen in the past. So these are all things that just keep in mind, but Really the key takeaway from these two studies is there's a lot unknown right now. Um, there's conflicting evidence. However, there does seem to be some sort of efficacy there. It's just really finding out which patient population it's, it works best in. So based on the information um, that I provided to you today and some other information out there, these two large governing bodies came together to come up with recommendations for both for acute myeloid leukemia. So, 
ASTCT says those that received a FLT3 inhibitor or HMA after transplant did have improved overall survival and relapse-free survival. So essentially acknowledging that there does seem to be efficacy in this area, but they do say that there's more information that is needed in terms of optimal duration, dosing, and MRD status. NCCN is a little bit more specific. They say initiate serafinib maintenance for post-transplant patients in remission and if they have a history of FLT3 ITD. And this is really based upon those two studies I highlighted today, um, given that there's good support for their use, um, good use for serafinib. However, they do not mention any of the other FLT3 inhibitors, and they do not mention the utilization of hypomethylating agents in this setting. So wrapping up this section, I really want, I do want to highlight the unanswered questions that we have. So I think we still need to answer the utility of different FLT3 inhibitors in the post-transplant setting. We have a good sense of where serafinib fits in, but we're still trying to figure out mitostorin and gilteritinib, and hopefully we'll know more when the MORPHO trial comes out. Also, the patient population that would benefit the most from a hypomethylating maintenance therapy, we're, we're hoping and thinking that's going to be for those patients with high-risk cytogenetics and TP53, but if we had a larger, larger study, we could hopefully figure out the best dose for those patients as well as duration. And then lastly is the optimal duration. I think this kind of is for across the board, both ALL and AML, just determining what the best duration is for our patients. And that brings us to our last assessment question of the day. A 62-year-old male with FLT3 positive AML receives induction with 7 plus 3 amidostorin and is proceeding to allotransplant. Would you recommend maintenance therapy? A, yes, recommend starting decitabine. B, yes, recommend starting imatinib. C, there's no evidence to support maintenance in this setting. Or D, yes, recommend starting a FLT3 inhibitor. I'll give everyone a few moments to answer this question. All right, that's about the number of results we've been getting. So the correct answer here is D, yes, I would recommend a FLT3 inhibitor. I think we're still trying to figure out which one is best in this setting. Um, typically, the, the one that has the most support is the serafinib. A would be incorrect. Um, that's a hypomethylene agent, the cytobine is. And when we have a targeted approach with the FLT3 mutation, I would utilize that first. B is incorrect. That's the pH positive directed inhibitor. And I think C is incorrect because we have enough evidence to support the use in this area. So with that, I did want to provide a summary slide of what we've discussed today. So those patients with FLT3, a FLT3 mutation with AML, I think it's safe to say we should give them a FLT3 inhibitor if they're able to tolerate it in the post-transplant setting. Those with high-risk cytogenetics and TP3 mutation, we can consider a hypomethylating agent. And lastly, those with pH-positive ALL, we can also consider those patients, give them a BCR-able TKI. And with that, these are my conclusions. So um, the maintenance therapy is utilized to reduce relapse rates. However, we're really lacking those larger prospective randomized trial to determine widespread use across all patients. It seems to be very practice dependent upon about how long to continue, et cetera. And that kind of goes along with the second bullet point here. So the dosing and duration. And then lastly, I had to throw this in here. I think as pharmacists, we're really essential to ensuring that our, our patients are on the right dose and that there's no drug-drug interactions when utilizing these targeted pharmacological agents. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. 
Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.